Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning. We are continuing with our uh, class on Bitachon, the Bitachon vaccine. And uh, you can find it on my podcast as well, called Accessing Your Best Self with Devorah Vale on any of the podcast stations. This class is sponsored by Bev Benya, and it's in memory of Yaakov Tzvi ben David Aryeh. Unfortunately, we lost a very great personality this week, last week, Shabbos. After Shabbos, we all heard about the Petira, the death of Lord Rabbi Chief Jonathan Sachs, and um, it's with a great feeling of sadness and, and, and loss the Jewish people uh, feel for this great thinker. I myself had never really um, heard of him, and about, I guess, 15, 16 years ago when we moved to Toronto, uh, we rented a home of a family that had moved to Israel for a sabbatical year, and always a voracious reader, I looked into his study, and he had every single book on Rabbi Jonathan Sachs that he had written up to that point. And I just remember voraciously reading one after the other and being so um, so awed and enthralled by the way that he took secular knowledge and secular philosophy and... and um, certain ideas from that world and integrated them so beautifully with the Torah. And this was really his greatness. Um, so we're learning today in his memory. May his memory be for a blessing. May his neshama have an aliyah. And um, we're going to discuss a little bit of his Torah on the, on the concepts of Amun and Bitachon. Class is also sponsored by Susan and Ernie Greenwald in gratitude to Hashem Isparach, to God, on the occasion of the birth of a new granddaughter, Rivka Nechama, born to Yael and Chaim Greenwald in Calgary. Mazel tov, Susan, and thank you for sponsoring. And I'm going to add this at the expense of sounding like a, a Ba'alat ba Gaiva, an arrogant person, but she also wrote, and it's an appreciation for this that this class provides to so many wonderful women in the Toronto community and beyond. So thank you, Susan, for that for that support and encouragement. We started a new class on Sundays, just for everybody who, who may not know, at 10.30 in the morning. It's called Making Prayer Meaningful. If you missed the first one, it's on the podcast. Um, and it's basically a journey through the Shemona Esrei. So please uh, use that podcast and let your friends know about it if you've missed it. Okay, so we're continuing today with our discussion of Emunah and Bitachon. And I've been listening to a lot of different things by Rabbi Sachs this week, and I'm sure many of you um, have been getting a lot of downloads and uh, things in your chats about different things that Rabbi Sachs was famous for saying. 
One thing I want to mention is there's a TED talk that he gives that is really worth listening to, uh, very relevant to the times that we're living in. And um, I was listening to a podcast by Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg from Boca Raton. He has a podcast called Behind the Bima. And I'm sure it was pretty recent. I don't know whether the rabbi was already ill at this time, um, because we really only found out about his illness just a few weeks before his passing. But basically, the rabbi asked uh, Rabbi Sachs, Allah Shalom, if he ever had a crisis in faith. And Rabbi Sachs' response was, no, I have never had a crisis in faith. He said, um, he never had a crisis of faith in his belief in God, but rather his crisis was more in, in, in the realm of his trouble understanding how God continues to believe in man. And in light of his, you know, study of the Holocaust, obviously, and knowing Holocaust survivors, as many of us do, this, he said, was his greatest crisis, is to try to understand how God has not given up on man in light of the horrors of the Holocaust and other things, obviously, that uh, happened. And um, in another short interview, the rabbi was asked, and I'm sure many of you heard this, is if he had an answer yet to the question of why bad things happen to good people. And he said, at one point he had said he didn't know the answer to that. And at this point, which was also a more recent interview, he said, yes, I think I have an answer to that question. And I'm going to quote. He said, God, God does not want us to understand the answer to that question. Because if we ever understood, we would be forced to accept that bad things happen to good people. And God does not want us to accept those bad things. He wants us not to understand so that we will fight against the bad and the injustices of this world. And that is why there is no answer to this question. God has arranged that we shall never have an answer to it. Again, another very profound way of looking at that question, which has been asked for thousands of years by the greatest minds of the Jewish people. And of course, there have been many different answers given. But ultimately, the, at the end of the day, we know that part of Emunah and Bitachon is that we will never have that full answer while in this world. We can come up with different ways of dealing with it. But this response of Rabbi Sachs, where he says, it is purposeful that we cannot have the answer because God does not want us to accept bad and injustice in the world. He wants us to rail against it. And I think that's a very Jewish response um, to how we as Jews have always dealt with the idea of tikkun olam, that we are here as partners with God to fix the world and to bring the world to completion, to a day when bad things won't happen to good people and only good will prevail in the world and things will be very, very clear. But until that day, this is our job. Another thing that I thought was interesting is um, Rabbi Sachs mentioned that he learned his belief in God his, in a, in, in, from his father, 
and he called his belief in God emuna peshuta, a very simple and uncomplicated belief. And he said he learned this simple, pure belief in God from his father, who was not a learned man, but never, ever questioned God's existence. One other thing I wanted to share with you that I came across, which is from a different rabbi. Maybe you've heard of him, Rabbi Dr. David Fox. He's a forensic and clinical psychologist. And I came across his definition of what, of what he would call bitachon. And I think this is important for today's class. So this Rabbi Fox defines bitachon as hope. He explains hope is one of the kochos hanefesh, the energy of the soul. We know that in Tehillim we say, Kaveh el Hashem chazak becha, the Kaveh el Hashem, hope to Hashem, right? And Hashem will strengthen you. So he says this koach of hope is one of the energies of the soul. Hopefulness, he says, is in a way the operash, operash, operashenev, I don't like that word. It, it's, it, it's the activating part of bitachon, right? Hope activates bitachon. It is the activating of the part of the brain that envisions better times. Hope is within us, but it must be activated. And this fuels our bitach on our faith in Hashem. Rabbi Fox, as a psychologist, even suggests visualizing safety, protection, good health, joy, a world without the virus in which we are all renewed and redirected with greater devotion towards serving Hashem. Or as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, where we enter a world that is less about the me and more about the we. Because mankind is so fixated on himself in this generation, right? We said in other classes, the, the mental illness called narcissism has been removed from the DSM manual of mental illness because psychologists say everybody suffers from it today. My genes, my way, my coffee, my way, my kugel, my way, right? And it's a sickness. And Rabbi Sachs in that TED Talk that I mentioned talks about that when they do an archaeological dig of our generation, they will find thousands and thousands of books talking about self-help and self-realization. And then they'll find the selfie stick and they'll conclude that this was a generation that worshipped the self. And basically, this virus, which is, I think, happening at the time of the TED Talk, or even if it wasn't, it was very prescient that he spoke about this, of the idea that the world has to move from me back to we in order to go forward into a better world. Okay, so back to our uh, class, which a lot of it, as you know, is based on Dina Schoonmaker's classes that she gives in Israel. She's a teacher at Michlala, and she approaches her classes through a Musser prism, character development, and it is specifically uh, tailored for women because women have different needs when it comes to self-development. The Musser writings that are really uh, meant for men 
are much too tough on women because we said that women are tough enough on themselves. We beat ourselves up all the time. We don't need things told to us in a tough way, but more in a gentle way. This is what makes us change. Going back again to the source in the Torah that when Hashem gave the Torah to the Jewish people, he gave it differently to the women than he did to the men. The wording is different. The word which, it, which is used in terms of communicating is a softer, gentler lashon than the word that is used when the Torah is being given to the men, which is much harder and stronger and fear-inspiring. Fear okay. So we were talking about um, one of the questions, the question that we're going to start with today is the idea that is it possible that when a person does hishtadlut, right? We've been talking about the relationship between hishtadlut and bitachon. How much effort does a person have to make if we understand and know that God is the one who decides everything and every outcome? regardless of our efforts. So at the one, on the one hand, we have to know this, but on the other hand, we are required to do. But the question again is, how much do we have to do? Right? We said that one of the perks of having more bitachon is it should help us reduce our anxiety. We do the best we can, and then we leave the rest to Hashem. And it should also help us reduce our guilt that we are not in control. We did the best we could with the tools that we had at the time. Whatever evidence, whatever tools we had that were on our desk at the time that we were mothering or parenting, we used those things. But that God himself gave us certain shortcomings and blind spots. And so we are not responsible for the outcome necessarily. Yes, maybe we could have done better, maybe this, maybe that, but there is no room for guilt in someone who is a bal bitachon. We move forward. We say, I did the best I could at the time with the tools that I had. But this is the next question. So is it possible that when a person does his shtadlut, knowing full well that Hashem decides the outcome, that just knowing this helps the outcome, changes the outcome. In other words, back to this idea, to the degree that you trust that God is in charge, does that affect the outcome and result that God is going to give you? Okay? And we said this idea earlier. We said that David HaMelech calls God his shadow. That, you know, the same way if you take two steps forward, the shadow takes two steps forward. If you take two steps back, the shadow, so to speak, takes two steps backwards. God is a mirror image of us. So in the area of trust, again, the idea is the more you rely on Hashem, not on the doctors, not on the medicine, not on the fact that you jog every day and stay fit and healthy, not on the fact that you know certain people in high places that are going to help you, not in your money, not in your strength, right? The race is not won by the swift. Um, 
to the degree that you put your trust ultimately in God, the outcome will be affected based on that measure. So if you trust, again, if you trust a little bit, but really your trust is in the doctors and in the money and in whatever else efforts you're making. So God obviously knows that better than we know it ourselves. And God says, okay, you trust the doctors, you trust the medicine to the extent that they can help you. That is where your help will come from. And of course, we're supposed to take the medicine and we're supposed to find the best doctors. But again, this idea of we have to hold the vessel, sorry, break the vessel and hold the contents. This is the paradox of bitachon and hishtadlu. We have to make our efforts, but never at any moment can we believe it was the doctor, it was the medicine, it was the treatment, it was my smarts, it was my brilliance, it was my, uh, uh, my strength. And that is a very difficult thing to do. And it's a constant work. And it's a work that's always in process. So yes, it's true that the more we trust, the more the outcome can be the way we want it to be. Okay? This is where it comes from. And unfortunately, I did not put down the quote here, but I mean, I didn't put down the source here, but this is what the source says. It's from a reliable source. Your chesed with us will be to the extent that we hope for and wait for it. So yes, it is true that you actually attain more divine assistance when you really understand that it comes from him, that everything comes from him. Another quote, another source. God says, I will have mercy to those who I want to give it to, and I will give rachamim to those I will have compassion on. So what is this teaching us? The chanosi v'rachamti, the chanoti v'rachamti, I will have mercy and I will have compassion. So it's teaching us that I will do this on those who realize that compassion comes from me. That mercy comes from me. And the idea here is that when we relinquish control, that is very often when the Yeshua comes. When we say, oh, I can't do it. I give up, right? How many of us feel at times in our lives that we're just pushed to the brink? We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We've lost our clarity. We feel completely helpless and alone. And it's from there that God wants us to cry out when we feel this sense of total loss of control, as the Jewish people felt just before God took them out of Egypt. Only after they let out a cry from the depths of their hearts that said, from their kishkas, that said, there is no one that can help me. There is no one that can save us. We've had enough. We can't take it anymore. Only when that genuine cry came, when they recognized completely and absolutely that the Yeshua, the salvation, could only come from God, that's when their redemption happened. And for each one of us in our personal lives, God sometimes pushes us 
to that level of lowness, of feeling in a pit. But it's all in order for us to cry out and recreate a level of connection to Hashem that is deeper and more genuine than anything we've ever felt before. That's our opportunity. We don't have to wait for those moments. We don't want to wait for those moments. We want to develop our connection with Hashem during good times, when it's easy, when there's so much to be grateful for, before we need, or perhaps our neshamas need to be, uh, have a tikkun of being pushed into a place that's difficult and dark. There's nobody, the Masilas Yasharim tells us, the path of the just. He says, what is a person's life? You know, you live 70, 80 years. And he says, in nobody's life, nobody goes through a lifetime you know, without any bumps. Nobody goes through a lifetime without valleys and pits and obstacles and bumps. And all of those things are meant to connect us more deeply and genuinely to our Father in Heaven. Okay. So the idea here is that when you relinquish control, sometimes that's when the Yeshua comes. But I don't want to make a promise. It's not always true. Sometimes we don't see the Yeshua, and we won't see it in this world. So to tell you that, you know, as long as you believe in God and you understand that he's in charge of the results and you put your trust in him completely, then you're going to get what you want? No, not necessarily. Okay? Sometimes Hashem says no. I was going to save this for my Shimon Asri class, but I'm going to read it now because I think it's so relevant and it's so good. And you know what? You can hear it again on Sunday because you'll forget it by then anyway. <laughs> if you didn't forget it, you can implement it. But I love this. Rabbi Miller asked a question in his book, Amun and Bitachon, should a person pester Hashem with trivial requests? You know, get me that parking spot next to the bay. I don't want to walk too far, right? One of those trivial requests, you know. Um, and the answer is, there is no limit to what you should ask Hashem for. If you're smart, you'll ask him for as many things as you can. And don't pull any punches, Hashem says. And this is from Tehillim. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The simple meaning is that Hashem says the more you ask of him, the wider you open your mouth and the more you deserve that he should fill it. He says, imagine a child who sees ice cream on the table. He opens his mouth wide for his mother to give him some, and she happily shovels it into his mouth. That's our relationship with Hashem. We are like helpless infants. He implores us, open your mouth, Shefala. Open your mouth. Let me get it in there. Open your mouth wide so he can fulfill our desires. Of course, sometimes a smart mother is not going to listen to her child. If the child opens his mouth wide before the meal for her to give him ice cream, she says, wait, first eat the main meal. A wise mother does not fill the child's mouth merely because he opens it. Hashem is the same way. He hears your prayers. Okay, we're going to leave that for now.
So we call Hashem HaMelech HaMishpat. HaShofet HaEmet, the true judge. Hashem is called the true judge. Why is he the true judge? Because a flesh and blood judge in this world, when he makes a decision, he's only making a decision based on what's in front of him and the person that is being tried and brought to court. But when Hashem makes a judgment, Hashem is taking into consideration everything around that person's life, their wife, their children, the community they come from, what they, their soul needs in terms of a tikkun, you know, past, present, and future from the beginning of time till the end of time. Obviously, Hashem sees with tremendous vision that a human being can, is not privy to. So Hashem's judgment is true means that it makes sense on many different levels. A this-worldly judge only judges in a one-dimensional way. What about his wife and his children who didn't deserve this? Hashem takes all aspects into consideration, and he's able to judge with truth. He takes into consideration the many ramifications of the verdict. Okay. Okay, so this is a bit of a, a different topic. What we're doing is we're going to go back here to the idea of the relationship between anxiety and bitachon. Okay, we talked about in last class that, you know, anxiety, which unfortunately today seems to be one of the great mental, mental illnesses of our time. You know, many children suffer with anxiety, young adults, of course, adults. But this is the new uh, condition that plagues our generation. Anxiety and worry, even though we've never had it better, we've never been more protected, more safe, more materially affluent. And yet the stress level and the anxiety level that even children feel from our fast-paced lives which the virus has slowed down, right, um, is, is skyrocketed. I know my daughter-in-law, who's a, um, who's a uh, speech therapist, said that anxiety and social skills are the two things that every parent is looking for. And as a speech therapist, I was shocked to find out all she teaches is social skills. That's considered part of speech today. And there's a huge market for it. Um, anyway, but the point is, is that, you know, when we talk about home air, some people are obviously born more anxious than others. It's not something, it's not, you don't choose to be that way. And for many people, it's just um, the way they're born. However, some people learn it from their environment. So it has uh, many different sources. It can be biological, it could be uh, psychological, it could be a social conditioning by a family that's constantly worried, talking about their worry about money, their worry about health, it can affect a person. But the point is, is that anxiety is a friend without boundaries. That's the way Dina Schoonmaker um, defines anxiety. One of the qualities 
of anxiety. It's a friend without boundaries, okay? And who is this friend without boundaries? Well, imagine you have a friend who texts you a hundred times a day and expects an answer, right? So this friend has no respect for your space, okay? So you might say about this friend, I love this friend, but I need boundaries in my life. So Dina Schoomaker says, worrisome thoughts, anxious thoughts are like a good friend who needs boundaries. Because most of us worry about important things. We're not worrying about you know, silly little things like what am I gonna make for dinner? Okay, that might get us going for a few minutes, but it doesn't pervade our day. It doesn't disrupt our lives. We don't ruminate over it from morning until night. Okay? So what are boundaries? What, are, what does it mean to create boundaries so that you can have this friend but, but, and enjoy their friendship but not have them take over your life? Boundaries means, in terms of anxiety, the ability to distract yourself and not allow thoughts to enter your mind. Distraction is a very important and powerful form of creating boundaries with your thoughts. And this is based on psychological research. It's not a cop-out. It's actually a tool that a person who's anxious can use, okay? And when you distract yourself from a negative thought, it's like neurological warfare, right? You're trying not to think about it, and the more you try not to think about it, what happens, right? It becomes relentless and stronger and even worse, so it's always this tug of war. Is this thought going to control me or am I going to control it? Am I going to be the master? Now, psychological uh, research shows that every bit of time that I can distract myself from that negative thinking, I'm weakening the power of that thought over me. Okay, so even if it feels like, oh my gosh, you know, I stopped thinking about it for two minutes when I, you know, turned on the radio or I decided to, you know, dance with the music or whatever you're going to do to distract yourself, take a walk with a friend, read a book, um, you know, go to sleep, whatever, whatever you have to do to get away from it, right? You've actually uh, weakened the power that it has because negative thoughts are addictive. And they actually use this method with addicts. So somebody who's a chain smoker, right? And you would say about them, oh, great, big deal. So they didn't smoke for the last half hour. Well, you know, what does that matter? They're still going to finish the pack. The idea in addictive counseling is that if they were victorious over it, even for a half an hour, even if they go back to the same behavior, they have weakened the circuit in the brain because we know about brain plasticity today. And, and it actually does help, it does make a dent, okay. So for the person who doesn't have this problem of anxiety, their natural home here is not to worry. And obviously, you know, that's somewhere where any of the worriers among us would love to be, even just for five, 10, 20 minutes. There are people who just don't worry you know, they just don't think about the future in terms of all of the things that could happen, you know, getting their imaginations all worked up because 
They just don't go there. So this is people who have a tzura of menucha sanefesh, right? Of tranquility of the soul. And it's characterized by people who live in the present and have a certain mindfulness without having even tried. Okay? So Rabbi Friedlander, who is famous for writing many things, but the Sif Sechayim Sefer, says the best distraction for an anxious thought is to realize that you're wasting your life when you're not living now because you're robbing yourself of the present. If you're thinking thoughts of the past, they're usually rooted in guilt. And thoughts of the future are always all about worries. Things that may never happen, which I think mostly they don't. Right? So menuchos anefesh or bitachon is an antidote to anxiety. Anxiety of worrying about the future. And he says we have a paradigm for how to achieve this menucha in Judaism. It's built into Judaism every week. God gives us the opportunity to practice the work of mindfulness. And where do we find it? In the transition from the six days of the week to Shabbat. We know that when Shabbat comes, everything stops, so to speak. In Kiddush, we say every week, six days you should work and do all of your malacha. Is that a command? No. Is it a promise? Chazal tell us it's a perspective. When Shabbos comes, it should be in your eyes as if all your work is done. Right? And this takes mindfulness. This takes being a master over your mind. When Shabbat comes, Chazal is telling us, you can practice a perspective that says everything is done. If you really want to relax on Shabbos, you have to consider that all your work is done. But let's be real, guys. It's not done. So what is this, a game? I've got stuff to do. I didn't finish my work. I'm halfway through my essay that's due on whatever Monday for school. But Chazal are saying, and the Sif Sechayim in particular, Rabbi Friedlander, it's either done or it's not done. In everything that a person does in this world, there are two partners. Me and Hashem. And Rabbi Friedlander says this is a very interesting partnership because you have me who's bound by time, who lives in the past, present, and future, or lives in the present right now, who lives in time. And yet we're partners. The the partner that we have is metaphysical. God. He's above time. He sees past, present, and future all at the same time. There's no such thing as linear time in his world. He's right? When we say Hashem's name in davening, we're supposed to think He was, he is, he will always be. This concept of something that is above time. 
So in my human mind, in my mind bound by time, what do you mean? My work isn't done. I won't finish this project until Sunday. But in Hashem's world, it's already done. In his world above time, in Hashem's world, it's done. So how does this help us? How does this help us reduce anxiety and have more menucha? So again, in Hashem's world, the decision was already made. The surgery was already completed. You're going into surgery, but on the other side, in Hashem's world, the surgery was already done. You have to give a speech on Tuesday. You're a nervous wreck. You're still getting it already. You don't know what's going to be, whether they're going to like you, whether they're going to hate you, whether they're going to throw tomatoes at you. But in Hashem's world, the speech is over. It's done. And the most important point of all of this, and this is where Bitachon comes in, and it's always good. Not only is it done, but it's always exactly the way it's supposed to be, and it's always good, even if it doesn't feel good, even if it, in your mind, was a failure. It's always good. That's the hard part to swallow, right? So this is the paradigm of candle lighting. After we light the candles, ladies, basically we're, we're being told, stop. You can't do anymore. You did your hishtadlut, and now you have to work on your bitachon. This is the balance. I made my efforts. I made my kugels. I got everything ready, right? And now I have to stop and let Hashem do his part. The should have, would have, could have comes to a stop. Now, it's not only true in terms of physical things and material things that we feel we need to get done and we get anxious over, but it's also true in spiritual endeavors as well. Even when it comes to ruchniut, our spiritual growth, we can overdo. We can try to do too much, too much chesed. As my mother used to say, I didn't know this, but my sister told me my mother was very good at saying, just say no. <laughs> just say no. She didn't walk, we did not grow up with any guilt. But, you know, this is the opposite of what can unfortunately happen to uh, women, uh, people in general who are striving spiritually and religiously. I was just talking to this with a friend yesterday. It can happen, especially sometimes with Balei Tshuva, who never really had models for when it's time to just say no. And we're propelled to destroy ourselves by being the, the, the chesed lady of the neighborhood or doing overextending ourselves in ways that we shouldn't be at the expense of our mental health, physical health. Um, and Revolve would call this misplaced piety, right? And so we have to be careful because there's an idea too that it's not our job to complete the mitzvah. We all know this, right? It's not up to you to... to um, 
It's not up to you to complete the work, and yet you are not free from doing all you possibly can. So we are meant to do, again, I'm not telling you just say no about everything. You have to know when, right? But normally we want to say yes, and we want to do as much as we can do. But even when it comes to a mitzvah, Hashem is the one that controls the outcome of my efforts and my spiritual growth. So the idea again with anxiety thoughts and creating anxious thoughts and creating boundaries is this idea we said last week of making an appointment with those thoughts because it could be that they are coming to teach you something. There is something that you need to do. But rather than allowing them to have free reign, like the friend who calls you every hour on the hour or texts you every minute on the minute, okay, and expects a response, you need to create boundaries with this anxious thoughts and say, we have an appointment tonight at nine, right? I'm bringing my paper and pen and we're going to figure out how to solve this problem if it's solvable. And if it's not, then we're going to let go and let God. Because those are the only two choices, right? As Rev Gov said, if you're worrying about something and you can do something about it, then do it. And if you can't, then stop worrying about it. Well, it makes a lot of sense. It's just hard to do, right? But it's very logical, right? If there's some problem in front of you, take care of it. Don't leave it there to worry about. Do something. And if not, then move on and don't allow it to overtake your life. Okay. Um, okay, so we're going to move on to another idea. And this is the idea of hashkacha pratis, of divine providence, and of noticing the divine providence in our every single day that happens. Because when we do this, it strengthens our recognition that God is involved in our lives and that he wants to be involved in our lives, and that he cares about what we care about. And he's there in the smallest ways. And these, this hashkacha is built into the universe, the Rambam says, Maimonides says. It's like science and nature. It's part of the universe. It's built into the universe. The Ramban, Nachmanides says, that it goes so far as we say in the Gemara that every single blade of grass has an angel that God sends telling it to grow. That is how incredibly, intricately detailed Hashem is in the involvement that he has in his world. I always say, you know, he tells, yesterday I went for an incredible walk in Cedarvale Park. If you've ever not been there, it's worth it. It's by Eglinton. Park your car and walk through there. There's so many places to go in there. Um, and I just was walking across an old bridge that's been cut off and you can only, only pedestrians can walk on it. And we just paused there and... It was silent, but you could actually hear every leaf, almost like it was, you know, as it was being detached from the tree and falling to the ground. You could hear them coming off the trees, and they were just flying in the wind like birds in certain places in the distance. 
And, you know, it brought me back to this idea, the same idea as the every blade of grass has an angel that tells it to grow. Every single leaf has an angel that says, it is your time to fall off this tree. Right? That is the uh, depth of detail and involvement that Hashem has in his world. I know this is hard for us to fathom, right? But it's the idea that every morning God tells the sun to rise. It doesn't just happen on its own. And if he's so involved with the leaves and the grass and the sun, how much more involved is he with his most beloved of all creations? And the creation that is most like him. Okay. All right, let's see if we can get through this. So we really believe that the hashkacha that comes into our lives, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether we experience a tremendous coincidence during the day, someone calls us that we thought about, that this is all, Hashem is involved in all of it. As we go through our day like Noah, like Avram Avinu, we are walking with Hashem. Hashem is walking with us. So uh, Dina Schoonmaker gives this example, which is very interesting. She talks about her sister, and she says that her sister was very idealistic. This must have happened many years ago. And after high school at 19, she went to Russia to help Russian Jewry. And this was just after the communist regime had collapsed, and the KGB was getting phased out. So the KGB used to follow refuseniks around. And at the beginning of the 90s, Jews were still being followed, even if they weren't arrested like they used to be. And I guess this took place in the 90s. So she said that her sister was sitting in a train, on a train. She was in Moscow. And she was traveling to a city a few hours away. And she sees a man on the train who's looking out the window, who looks very familiar to her. And then a few days later, she's in another train, and she sees the same man looking out the window again, just a few cabins away. And she thinks to herself, I must be imagining this. That can't be the same guy. But a few days later, she's in another train, and she sees him again, inconspicuously looking out the window. And she suddenly realizes, I can't believe it, but this person is following me, right? And of course, she's American. So this is her first taste of what it feels like to be followed by the KGB. So she has three thoughts in regards to this. So the first thought is she's curious. Gee, I wonder how long he's been following me before I even noticed him. Okay. Her second thought is, what's wrong with this guy? Does he have nothing better to do than to follow me? Like, you know, I'm not that important. I'm, I'm not really doing anything so, you know, so devious or tricky. I'm, I'm just traveling on trains and visiting people, right? And she starts, you know, she's, she almost feels like a boost to her self-esteem. Boy, I must be really important, you know? And then the last thing she thinks is, you know what? At least somebody cares where I am. 
I'm so far from home and nobody else knows where I am, but he does. He really knows where I am all the time. So she says, this is kind of the way, Lahabdil, that we feel about Hashkacha Pratis, about Hashem, so to speak, following us around all the time. Okay? That Hashem is with me through every move. So if we really internalize this, we might say, how long has he been following me and I didn't notice? Boy, I must be pretty important if Hashem is following me around. Or, wow, look at that. He cares. He cares about all the different things that I need to do today, about the bank being open for me or not. And not only is Hashem doing this to me, but he's doing this to everyone. So the reason we don't like this idea, it almost seems narcissistic to think that Hashem is really doing something especially for me. But we have to internalize that for Hashem, this is nothing. To focus on everyone, to care about millions of people, including you. So yes, we should think I'm very special, but we also have to realize so is everybody else. And that's a much harder level of bitachon, to imagine that Hashem cares about me, He follows me, He wants to know where I am, He wants to know what I'm doing, right? Lahavdil like the KGB, right? He's going to know if the bank was open or closed for me. He's going to be involved with that, okay? So Dina tells her own personal story here. She says, you know, she works all day in the morning and at night, and she loves her work, but the negative point is that a lot of details that need to be taken care of in her life don't get taken care of. So she always has a list in her head of what she's going to do when she has free time. And anyway, she said she was coming home late one night. Uh, she lives in Jerusalem. And she said that there was a store that was on the same side of the street as her that she'd never seen before that was open at 1030 at night. Usually she crosses the street before the store uh, comes you know, into her view. And for some reason, this night she didn't. And not only, she said, was the store open and the fact that she saw it, but she said it had absolutely, you know, it was one of these little makolits, these little bazaar stores, she said, with all kinds of strange things in it. And it actually had everything on her list. So, you know, she says to herself, you really think it was all arranged for you? You really think God made this happen? Come on. But she says, yes, that's the point. That's what we have to believe. It was really all arranged for you. In Hashem's omnipotence, everything is possible. He's doing it for you. And yes, it's true. He's doing it for everyone else too. So why are we resistant to this idea? So this is a very interesting idea, and we're going to go into this further in future classes. But it's based on this idea that we live in a world of cause and effect, right? So we ask the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? So what came first? You know, it's raining, your car broke down, something spilled, the bank closed, 
Wow, that was a hard day. Why? Because all these things are happening that I don't like. But what if you switch around cause and effect? What if you switch it around? I was supposed to have a hard day today. I was supposed to have a hard day today. And that's why all these details followed. In other words, the effect comes before the cause. The cause was just always supposed to be there because I was supposed to have a hard day today. The Balbi Tough One will say, oh, you know, my baby is so fussy tonight. He's not settling down. If only this baby would settle down, I could get some sleep. But the Balbi Tough One would say, Hashem is making me work on my patience. And the baby is the messenger to activate this test for me. The baby really wants to sleep. The baby's not the cause, but the effect. The cause is Hashem doesn't want me to sleep. So he makes the baby restless. Right? Think about it in terms of a job. So usually when we get a job, we say, you know, uh, the reason I got that job no, sorry, let's, let's think of it this way. So think of the job, you know, the job is the effect. I, 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 sent out, I sent out resumes, I interviewed, and then I got the job, right? But in Hashem's world, the idea is no, the job came first, and then all the right connections in your life that brought you to that job. It's not that I got the job after all these years because of all my connections. Okay? It's that the job was always there, and then the effects, the connections. Okay, So I was thinking about this in my own life. My son, my youngest son, ended up marrying into a family of a woman who actually made my husband and my um, shidduch, okay? And she ended up, how many years later? Oh, I don't know. 30-something years later, making a shidduch for our youngest son with her niece. So if I want to use this switch of cause and effect, I would say, you know, God knew that my son has to marry Evelyn's niece, right? So now I can explain all the reasons why she had to be part of our life all the way back to our own marriage in order for her to set things up that our, my, our son should marry her niece. Okay, this is a little complicated. We're going to clarify this more in next week's class. But the idea of bitachon is that the effect comes before the cause. The result was already planned. The steps of how you're going to get there are just in order to have the result happen. Okay, it's very difficult to change our thoughts and our process of thinking like this, but I'm going to give you more examples of this. I was supposed to have a hard day. That's why all these bad things had to happen. It's also true with good things, right? It's true with bad things. It's true with neutral things. The thing was supposed to happen, and that's why all the details fell into place. Okay, so that's just something to think about. So... You know, what to take away with you for this week. So number one, to put on those 
glasses of Hashkacha Pratis and realize that Hashem is intimately involved in the details of your life. And he has a plan for you. And it's already in place. And the details of your day are leading towards that plan for you. And that the way that we can minimize anxiety, another way that we can minimize anxiety is through distracting ourselves, even if it's just for a short time, because that helps to build the bitachon muscle, to make an appointment with our worries and deal with them and then move on. Because if you're thinking about the past, you're stuck in guilt. And if you're thoughts are in the future, you're stuck in worry. And the goal of bitachon and menuchas nefesh is to not rob yourself of the present, but to create boundaries so that you don't have this friend without boundaries, this anxiety that has no boundaries. You learn and develop yourself into how to distract yourself. And that can be anything. Each one of us has our ways, right? It can be blaring loud music. It can be calling a friend. It can be going for a run. You can't think when you're doing that. It can be calling, uh, you know, reading a book. But if, if you are somebody who deals with anxiety, recognize that research shows that every moment that you distract yourself, it's not a cop-out. You're actually exercising a muscle and you're doing something very good for yourself. And again, the Balbi Tachon, there is no place for guilt and there is no place for worry, ultimately. Of course, that's a very high level to climb. And that's why we talk about it. And we, and we at least know the ideas that come from Judaism and only modern psychology, you know, is catching up with because it's all there. It's all in our Torah. You know, anything that modern psychology has discovered, and I came across something very good, I wish I knew where, um, that discusses this, that the Musr that we learn is all in the Torah. And so much of it, modern psychology is only discovering now. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Great to see you, Rhonda. You look great. Thank, thank you so much, Devorah. Unmute yourselves and say hi. Thank, thank you so much, Devorah. Thank, thank, thank you, Devorah. Thank, thank you again to our sponsors, Ben. Thank and you. Susan. Thank you very much. Hi there. Thank you. And Mazel Tov. And great thank to see you. everybody. Thank Bye, Renee. You. Bye, Patty. Thank you. Bye, Florence. Thank you. Okay, Laura. take care, everybody. Yes. Thank you. I have a question. Yes. Who's there? Um, it's Penny. Yes, Penny. Um, okay. Uh, Penny, you're you good. So you much. always have a good question. <laughs> thank you so much. And this really, really hit home. And it's going to help. But the question is, for anxiety, distracting ourselves, should we add to mm -hmm. distract ourselves with something healthy or good? Of course. Instead of just saying, okay, I'm going to go distract myself and I'm going to have a piece of chocolate cake <laughs> yes yes try to do something that's healthy and good and good for your soul listen i am not advocating that people don't need medication obviously if people have real anxiety 
medication is in order, but for the regular normal type of anxiety, it's very important to realize that we can do things to help ourselves with it. And we can change our home air. And that is the work. And obviously God knows how hard it is for us if he made us a more anxious type of personality. But the idea of distraction is not eating a piece of chocolate cake, Penny, probably not, because the more anxious you are, the fatter you're going to get. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So that wouldn't be a good one. But, you know, going for a walk or finding a friend to talk to or, you know, um, whatever, whatever you know that makes you happy, that gives you some respite from your busy mind, you know, uh, that's what you want to do. And again, even if it's only for five minutes or 10 minutes and it takes you away from your anxious thoughts, it's considered a victory. It's considered making a dent. So that's an important piece to know that it doesn't mean, oh yeah, well, big deal. The guy's still smoking cigarettes. The guy, you know, so what if he didn't smoke for half an hour? Research shows that it actually makes a difference because you feel that you are empowered by having been in control, even if it's just for that short time. Okay? Yep. Anyway, Thanks. thank you, everybody. Thank you, Devora. Have a great and day. Have a great weekend. I hope I'll see you on Sunday. Okay, take Devora. care. Devora. Yes. Devora. Yes, hi, Harry. Wait, I better hi. stop this I recording. Get... Nobody wants